Well, good morning. Once again, there is, this is a new sermon series that I'm starting for the next couple weeks. It's, it's centered around this idea of God's not messing with you. God's not messing with you. And, and to maybe understand a little bit about what I mean by messing with you, we've probably got to try to identify the context of what I uh, mean by messing with you. Because I don't think if we, uh, if we don't start at the same place, then we're not going to get to the same destination together. There are two uh, uh, uses of the phrase messing with you. And the context of each of these um, will determine what uh, each one means. And then I'm going to zero in on the one that we're going to be talking about this, this time. Messing with you, uh, in one sense, is much like an officer telling a driver, I'm not messing around. If you don't slow down, I'm going to give you a ticket. You better slow down. It's more of a, uh, a uh, warning, uh, something of an authority figure that is telling someone who is under their authority um, that they better watch, they better get their act together. The other one is uh, messing around, and, and, and this is much like kids that are playing on a playground um, and or uh, siblings in a house. And when you see these, uh, this old from a distance, you might. Uh, two or three kids that are just teasing each other, and they're just messing around. They're just messing around. And almost certainly, you've experienced the first. You better get your act together, someone's told you. An authoritative, uh, it's an authoritative message with clear consequences that are spelled out. You had better slow down or you'll get a ticket. You better study for this test or you will fail. And much like two kids that are talking with each other about their chore lists that their parents have given them, Somewhere in the conversation, one child says to the other, my dad isn't messing around. He's serious about me getting my chores done. This is the idea of the first messing around. And sometimes it's for good reasons. A parent trying to change the trajectory of a child's future. I'm serious. Not messing around with you. Trust me. If you continue in this way, you'll regret it. Now, we've all been on the receiving end of this, haven't we? That child, that friend, that employee, that spouse, where another person is saying to you, I'm not messing around with you. And sometimes we listen. Other times we don't. But in either case, this first idea of messing around, the responsible, the, we are responsible for the outcome. When we're warned, we can't blame anyone else but ourselves. And when we don't listen to the warning, we're just left with shame and regrets of the past. Now, when you read the script, you can't help see this, uh, see that this is the way that God acts. He's not messing around. We've been warned, right? And if we listen um, or ignore his warnings, the consequences rest on us. Now, I'm not going to go into this passage, but just write down Ezekiel chapter 33. You, you see this all through. In the uh, Deuteronomy, you see this. Uh, you see this in Joshua, the first chapter. You see this in the prophets. You see this other places in the Exodus also. But Ezekiel 33, just write this down. It's the picture of Ezekiel as the watchman for the people of Israel. And, and you'll see this kind of authoritative, the person's responsible. Now, just as we'd expect that some part of our relationship with family and friends may be like this first one, we should also expect that part of our relationship with God to be like this. 
And the image of that relationship from this perspective of messing around that we project upon God is this, that God protects us because God loves us. Right? Now, the second one here with kids on a playground, this is much harder to accept. This is much harder to lean into. And especially when we consider our faith and our uh, maturation and our journey with Jesus, it's, it's dangerous to our faith. It's, belie- it's, it's believing that God is messing around with us in such a way to say that he is stringing us along or he's pulling our leg from out under us, or maybe that God is psychologically manipulating us in one way or another. And each makes us feel like God's doormat. Makes us feel like we're his mark or his pawn. Now, although it's easy to believe this or see ourselves in this, we don't often admit this. Because it's a feeling that we keep under the surface rarely admitted. Exasperated, we have hopes that God is going to do something, only find out that it seems that he's pulled the rug out from under us. This feeling that God is messing with us in the sense of teasing us, stringing us along, it remains beneath the surface. And we may not tell anyone but ourselves, but the reality is, is that it's a dangerous place to be. It's a dangerous place because the image that this projects upon our relationship with God is that God does not love us, nor does he like us. The feeling is subtle, but no matter how subtle, it still germinates under the surface. And slowly we convince ourselves that something that we'd never openly admit, that God is just teasing us, that we're his pawn, that we're his doormat or we're his mark. So for the next couple weeks, we're going to dig in and we're going to push back on those feelings, on those subtleties, on those possibly uh, germinating senses below the surface where we convince ourselves based on the circumstances that we find ourselves that God is teasing us. God is is messing with us, and specifically today, that God is stringing us along. What, what does it mean to string someone along? We probably all have an image, a feeling that that kind of evokes inside of us. But I want to tell you a story of a, um, a man by the name of Victor Fried. Victor Freed is uh, a man who, at this time in his life that he's describing, is he's going through the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous for his addiction to alcohol. This is what he says, and I'll try to paraphrase it as much as possible. For most of my life, I believed in God, but I hated God. Just as I believed in the police force, I knew it existed, but I didn't want, to have, I didn't want it to have anything to do with my life. And I convinced myself that all my problems ultimately boiled down to this one cause. God is messing with me. Not only did I hate God, but I believed that God hated me. 
And when you believe something strongly enough, your mind searches everywhere to find evidence to support your belief and rejects all the evidence to the contrary. He continues, I was working part-time in a custom furniture shop. I had been sober for about a year and a half, and I had turned my drinking over to God, but only my drinking. I wanted him to stay out of the rest of my life. Working in a furniture shop didn't pay much, so I was always looking for other ways to make more money. One day, I was driving down the street, and I saw this man carrying an antique chair toward the dumpster. The chair had a broken rung. It looked old, but I knew I could repair it, and I could refinish the chair, and, and maybe I could sell it and make a little bit more money. So I pulled up beside the dumpster, and I said to the man, I said, man, if you're, not, if you're going to throw that away, can I have it? And he says, I couldn't believe what happened next. He looked at me and he said, no. And he took the chair and put it over his head and he smashed the chair over the dumpster. He says, if I was reflecting back on that, to me, this was clear evidence that God was just stringing me along. Because he had offered me a chance to make some money and then jerked it away as soon as I reached it. Now, we're going to finish this story in just a second, but let's just push pause for a moment. This is what I think of when I imagine what it might look like for God to string me along. When you string someone along, it means that you keep that person in a state of uncertainty. You keep that person in a state of anticipation, and you do that by giving that person false hopes or promises and by leading them without any real intention of following through. And when you, and when you feel taken advantage of by someone playing on your hopes, what you become, in essence, is a doormat. And the truth of the matter the doormat's well-being is always secondary to the one playing on their hopes. The common instrument used in stringing another person along, the method, if you will, is through making promises that you have no intention of following through on, only to raise the other person, your doormat's hopes and uh, dreams and aspirations. And when we're the doormat, it feels like we're always between Promises made and promises fulfilled. But under the surface, there's this subtle feeling that you feel like you're being strung along. And this time, this time that you find yourself between a promise made and a promise fulfilled, you are convincing yourself that this is the time that God's going to pull the rug out from under you. And under that surface is that feeling. That keeps on going, keeps on percolating, keeps on germinating. And when it's God who makes those promises, and when you find yourself in between the promise made and the promise fulfilled, you just can't help feel like sometimes I feel that God is stringing us along. So what do we do? What do we do? Let's look at the life of this guy named Simeon. A man whose life is long. He's near the end of his life because in our passage, he actually says, God... You can go ahead and take my life. I'm done. You, I have seen your promise. So we don't know how long he has lived in this promise made and promise fulfilled. But wherever he is in that, that uh, journey, we know, or in, this, in his life, we know that this is near the end of his life, the culmination of that promise, just before that promise is fulfilled. Now, here's the context before we jump in. 
This is during the birth narrative of Jesus, and it's only found in Luke's gospel. The shepherds have now gone back to their fields. They're glorifying God because of why? What the angels have told them had come true, right? They saw exactly the good news. They saw everything that, that the angels had promised, and so they found the Messiah exactly where they had been told. Now the time came after the, the, uh, the uh, uh, shepherds leave that there was about 40, 45 days that Mary and Joseph had two things to do with Jesus. The first one could be done in Bethlehem, their very hometown. Jesus, within eight days, had to be circumcised. Now there, and there was a second requirement. Is the second requirement was 33 days later, he had to be brought to Jerusalem to be presented before the law, which was required not of all children, but only the first male that is born into a family. And so the context of where we find ourselves is Mary and Joseph entering into the temple with Jesus, with their offering, to present Jesus before the Lord, to the Lord. And as, we, as the passage unfolds, we quickly find out that Luke includes this not because he wants to tell us how faithful Mary and Joseph were, that they obeyed. It's because of the story of Simeon. So after, Jesus, after he gives us the background, we get into this passage about Simeon. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous, devout, and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Luke tells us just about everything we need to know about this man, and he sums up his entire life in a couple verses. He's righteous and devout. Holy Spirit is upon him. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Y'all, don't get, don't get hung up with it. Consolation of Israel is just a Jewish term for the Messiah. It's just a Jew. He was waiting for the Messiah. So here is Simeon. Now, I think it's odd because Luke is singling Simon out. It seems that Simon is the only person who's waiting for the Messiah. But I think that if you would ask any of the other Jewish people in that community, they too would tell you the very same thing. Who are you waiting for? I'm waiting for the Messiah. They're all waiting for him because they believe that the Messiah would restore the kingdom of Israel that the Messiah would usher in the year of the Lord's favor, that the mountains would be brought low and the valleys would be filled in, and that the Messiah would overthrow their oppressors, that the Messiah would restore their honor to bring Israel back to those high days when David was king. But what makes this so odd for me is that Luke describes Simeon as being, it seems that he is the only person who is waiting for the Messiah. The others were waiting, yes, but as they were waiting, they fished. As they were waiting, they lived out their lives. Waiting for this Messiah was secondary. For Simeon, waiting for the Messiah was primary. Now look, this is not a message about getting your priorities straight, okay? This is just to give you the context of what's going on here. There's a lot of other uh, passages about priorities. This is not a message about anxiety or coping with unmet expectations because there are other passages that are better for that. This is a message about God not only making promises, but also God fulfilling promises. And so there's, here's how Luke continues. And it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit 
that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. This is the promise. When we're first introduced to Simeon, he's in the middle of this promise given, promise fulfilled. He's waiting, waiting for the Messiah because he had been told, promised, that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And he was eagerly and actively anticipating the arrival of his Messiah because God had promised him. Now, I wonder what it was like for Simeon. Again, I don't know how long this had been. I don't know how many years that he had been doing this. Someone coming up to Simeon and saying, what are you doing today, Simeon? I'm going to the temple and waiting for the Messiah. There had to be days where he seemed like going to the temple and waiting was a waste of time. Even though he was devout, there had to be days that he felt discouraged. God promised, but as distance grew between the day it was promised and the day that the promise was fulfilled, almost certainly Simeon felt, dare I say, that God was stringing him along. Now, I can't speak for Simeon, but I can speak for me. And maybe you can relate. If it was me, I would have said, I would, I would have thought this is all growing old. Because each day I would return home without the promise being fulfilled, I would lose a little piece of confidence in God. You too? Each day when I left the temple with nothing, not seeing, I'd lose a little bit of excitement. I find myself on that journey home saying, why wait, God? Are you stringing me along? Was the promise just to get me in the temple to do something for you? Is this your modus operandi? Do you even intend to follow through? But each day, he continued to actively and aggressive, or, uh, uh, actively wait for the Messiah. Now, you know the story, right? Mary and Joseph walk into the temple, and Simeon sees the, uh, the child, and Jesus is presented to the Lord. And, and uh, Simeon says, now, Lord, uh, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to the, your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light in the revelation to Gentiles, and for the glory of your people. What a beautiful, beautiful story this is. I want you to look deep into your heart. Do you believe at times that God is messing with you? That there is this anticipation inside of you, this, this gift that you think that God has given you, and, and, and you want to do this, and, and it just seems that God is just like, giving you something, taking it away, just kind of hanging a carrot in front of you, just stringing you along, dangling this promise in front of you with no intention of fulfilling it. And the time between the promise made and the promise fulfilled makes you feel like, God, you're just, you're just messing with me. Now, let me tell you, God is not messing with you. He's not stringing you along. And, and there are lessons that we can learn from Simeon to help prevent us to going into this dark place. And these are just three lessons that we can use to help prevent us from going to this dark place where we find ourselves 
inevitably, maybe because of the circumstances, because of our frustration, because of what the world is telling us, and we just think God is just stringing us. Let me just give you these three things that we can do to help prevent ourselves from going down this dark place. The first one is this. We learn from Simeon that Simeon knew the promises. While he was waiting, Simeon knew that God was not stringing him along because he knew the scriptures, which meant he knew God's track record. Sometimes we forget God's track record. And sometimes when we feel ourselves going down that slippery slope where we might start thinking and, dare I say, entertaining the idea that the next thing that God is doing in our lives is he's just stringing us along, or he's about to pull the rug out from under us, is that we don't remind ourselves of God's track record. Now, certainly we can look in the scriptures and we can see God's track record. Certainly we can look in the life of the early church and see the track record. But here's where I want you to zero in in anticipating or discovering God's track record. I want you to see God's track record. And if you don't know what it is in this context, I want you to look for it. I want you to see the context, uh, God's track record in the context of your life. I want you to go back and I want you to think of those times where God was in... It was by, it was no, there was no mistake, there is no doubt in your mind that God did something for you. In this event, that you have played, planted a seed, that you know that this is the place, that God did something amazing for you. He was present. You experienced his grace. His steadfast love. And his faithfulness. And I want you to examine the promises of God. And I want you to write them down. I want them to be someplace that you can get to them quickly. The second thing we learn from Simeon is that Simeon actually stayed in his lane. He knew that they were not promises for him to fulfill. He embraced his, his role as a participant, as a promise receiver. He did not try to fulfill promises on his own. And there are many examples in the scripture where God does this. You can do, how about this one? How about Abraham? Abraham, when he's 75 years old, he is promised that he is going to be a great nation and he will have an heir. But unfortunately, at that point, he and Sarah have no children. And so for the next 25 years, Abraham finds himself at wit's end. You know, the scripture doesn't tell us. I bet you he felt that God was stringing him along. And so he took matters into his own hand. He got out of his lane, and he went into God's lane. And he said, I'll fix that. And born to Hagar is Ishmael, one of his heirs. Do you know when we feel um, our need to get into God's lane is when we think God is not moving fast enough. 
or we think the trajectory of the future doesn't make sense or it's not what we expected. So not only do we learn from Simeon to know, your prom- know the promises, the promises fulfilled. Not only do we learn from Simeon to stay in, his, uh, in our lane, we also learn this, and this is the last one. Simeon's faith was in God, not the promise. L- let that sink in for a second. Simeon saw God as the promise keeper, not just the promise maker. You see, when your faith is in the promise and not in the one who makes the promises, then your faith is not in the one who promises. If you put your confidence in the promise and not the promise maker when it comes to God, then when those moments when the trajectory doesn't look like what it should be or what we expect, we will always find ourselves backing away from God. You see, what happens is this is pride. We're going to put ourselves above God. It's us who, is more, who are more important than God. You look at God's track record. You give God permission to fill the promise in his way. Let me, uh, let me finish Victor Freed's story. You remember where we left him, right? Feeling that God's messing him just again after that man crashed that chair on the dumpster. He continues, one year later, I reached the point in my life where I found that my life was no longer worth living. I just didn't want to fight anymore. It was winter in Kansas City during a bad cold snap in sub-zero temperatures. He said, at this time, I drove my car along the Missouri River, and I parked, and I walked a long way downstream. I was wearing a heavy coat that I thought would help keep me current, help the current to pull me under, knowing that it was a a coward and I was a coward and, and as soon as I hit the icy water, I'd probably try to get to the shore. And I also walked far enough from my car to ensure that if I did somehow make it out of the water alive, I would surely freeze to death before I could get back in it. So while I was standing there on the riverbank, taking one last look around, Watching chunks of ice float down the river, suddenly, instead of chunks of ice, I saw once again that dumpster from a year and a half ago. And I saw that antique chair. And I heard that voice right in front of me say, no, you can't have it. And then I heard another voice. said, if you're going to throw that away, Victor, can I have your life? If you're going to throw that away, can I have it? 
See, God's game is not about teasing you, stringing you on. God's purpose is not to make your dreams and aspirations come true. But once we lean into our place and our role as participant, once we embrace ourselves as promise receivers and not necessarily the one who has to make the promise come true, we start to see the beauty of what God wants to do in us and through us. And let me say this. That when we go down that slippery slope, it's like Victor Freed saying, I give up. And I want you to hear God whisper to you. If you are going to throw it away, can I have it? Gracious God, the promises are sure and certain. And throughout Scripture, we see your promises, your promises, your promises. Maybe it's the promise, O oh God, of you never leaving us or forsaking us. Maybe it's the promise, O oh God, of you uh, uh, giving us uh, a sense of, of uh, belonging and, and being reminded of our sacred worth, that we are people of worth. But life tells us a different story. So I pray, oh God, we become vigilant to not to listen to what the world says. But we become, oh God, men and women, boys and girls, who even though the world might see you uh, working in their lives and that becomes secondary, we see you working in our lives as primary. waiting. We're actively searching. We're actively praying. We're actively staying in our lane. And we're actively placing our faith not in the promise, but in the one who makes the promise. Lord, if there are people here who feel strung along, I pray through the service of communion that you would allow your spirit to remind them of their worth that the treasure of Christ giving his life for us would give us this picture, this fulfillment, this, this resolution that we are treasured because of his treasured gift. So may it be for us in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.